You've talked about Live Aid, we're talking about concerts. Let's go to two people who um, experience some of the greatest moments of their lives in concert. Terry is with us. Terry went to see an incredible event at Wembley. Are you with us, Terry? Yes, I am. Hi, Wallace. Kia ora, Terry. What did you see? Uh, well, I went to um, the British Live Aid at oh. Wembley Stadium. Oh. Fantastic. Amazing. And um, it was actually um, quite last minute. My Scottish friend, Nina, was um, rang me up um, the day before and said uh, some people in her work had offered her some tickets and did I want to go? So all we knew about it was, you know, Bob Geldof and, and he was involved and that was we had no expectations and it ended up being like the most fantastic day. So, mm. yeah. Wow, that must have been amazing. What a different world that was, actually, at that time. Imagine that now. I can't imagine that. You went to one of the most remarkable musical moments of the 20th century, Terry, Live Aid, Mm. a moment that I watched through the television at um, Yamaha Music and Nelson, (laughs) or was it Biggs, watching through. um, Who of note can you recall from Live Aid Wembley? Um, well, I can recall all, all of it, really. Um, um, Queen was obviously particularly outstanding. Mm. Oh, my God, you were there. Um, but there were Sade, Sting, oh, U2, Sade. Bowie, um, Midge Phil Collins. I mean, it was really like a list of all the 80s um, you know, top acts at the time. And, and the only one I, I absolutely couldn't stand is The Who, who... who Pretty much reformed for that gig, I think, but I can't stand the Who, so that was when I went to the toilet. And, <laughs> okay, um, so you went to the toilet for the Who. The, All right, that's a bit sad. On the Portaloo, the, you had to you know, choose your moment because it was such a um, fantastic uh, lineup of acts. So I went while the Who was on, and they were so loud that the Portaloos, all of them were shaking with oh the Oh, God, you don't want that in a Portaloo. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was, you know, was, that was, was that the concert where Phil Collins took Concord from London and flew to, yes. to, to yes. the States to be yes. part of the American one? Okay. Yeah. Yes, he played it at, the, uh, at Wembley and then he took Concord across and played it. Um, the American one as well. So, oh, yeah. I have too many questions for you, Terry. Too many questions, but we have to move <laughs> on. Thank you for the memories. That is actually extraordinary. That's uh, Terry there who went to Wembley Live Aid 85. That was oh, such a universal beat. moment, eh? Yeah. We, put, we had our mattresses on the floor in the yeah. living room in Lower Hut and, yeah. It was a real thing. Stayed up all mm. night. Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, crowded house, Palmerston North, Opera House. That's good, <laughs> but Live Aid. And with us now, uh, we have Tim. Uh, kia ora, Tim. How are you? Very well. All right. So let's go back to 1977, Athletic Park. Oh, yeah. Who do you see? I saw Kiss. Oh. And it was the first ever concert that I'd ever seen. I was in, uh, what was it, Form 1. And my friend was a huge Kiss fan at the time. And I guess I was getting into it at that stage. It was, uh, if anyone's been to Athletic Park, I can guarantee that every time you go to a concert or a rugby match, there's always a howling southerly, and this one was exceptionally good. <laughs> so, yeah, as I texted you there, um, Gene Simmons flies on a wire across the stage oh, into God. the southerly and just about got blind back again. Now, we're talking uh, <laughs> maybe, you know, 15 feet up on the stage. Um, add to that, Ace Frehley fires rockets out of his guitar, which he's got like a little launcher thingy, uh, and then um, Paul Stanley smashes his guitar up and throws bits of it into the audience. Uh, and then to add to that, Peter Chris, who's the drummer, he finishes with this ridiculously long guitar solo at the end of the song Beth, which is his trademark song. So, I mean, what a way to start a concert, eh? Hey, 
Tim, rock and roll. Love it. Thanks for being with us on the panel. That's, that's amazing. Uh, uh, Kiss live in Atlanta Park. You're on the panel, RNZ National. We have Nikki Bazant and Mark Knopf-Thomas with me today. Well, you'll by now most likely be aware of the issue of forest slash uh, changing tack completely here. Images of seeing a forest debris slamming into and completely busting bridges shocked the New Zealand public uh, uh, after soaking Gabrielle. And a two-month ministerial inquiry was announced into land use causing uh, forestry slash. And East Coast group Manatai Tarafati was behind a petition calling for an inquiry and have joined the Environmental Defence Fund legal proceedings challenging the, the legality of the National Environmental Standards for Plantation of Forests. And they are looking, uh, reports the Gizmo Herald, to recruit a volunteer Army. With us to discuss, we have Hera Ngata Gibson, coordinator for Manataya Tarafati. Hera, kia ora. Good to have you on, on the panel. Kia ora, Wallace. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, you started this petition pre-cycling. I mean, this has been talked about for years now. Are you happy there is an inquiry now? Yeah, we're, we're, we're happy something's happening. Yeah. Uh, we weren't too happy about the time frame. Uh, but, um, hey, it's a hand we've been dealt, uh, so we, we're just trying to make the most of it, I guess. Tell us about this volunteer army, because that is interesting, <laughs> to research documents and reports, as I understand it, going back decades. Yeah, yeah, look, we've got, um, I think there's about 300-odd documents at the moment that we've, uh, so we put a call out to researchers and volunteers to pretty much start calling through um, a lot of the evidence and documentation that's already out there mm. um, and just being able to summarise it uh, just to, to help. We've got a small team uh, that's writing our submission uh, and, then a, and then a large team of volunteer, or, well, pretty much researchers uh, from all over the country uh, wow. that are, are helping us to, to pretty much just um, understand what's out there. Um, and how how that relates to and can support our submission uh, to the inquiry. Yeah, yeah. so leaving no unst- no stone unturned here, Nikki Bazant, uh, going back many years. Yeah, this is such a cool grassroots um, way that you're approaching it here. Huh? I'm, I, are they are they paper documents that you're dealing with, or are they electronic, or is it a mix? Yeah, so it's a mix. There's paper do- documents. There's electronic documents. Uh, we've managed to get access to some documents that are a bit harder to access. Uh, but yeah, um, so we've got a team who are who some people are, are scanning documents and getting them up into Google Drive. Um, they're meeting daily now, just to um, on Zoom, uh, just to um, yeah, just to keep it there. Obviously, we're, we're looking at two weeks. We've given people two weeks. Uh, to summarise their documents or their their chapters or their whatever they're looking at, um, identify the key themes, uh, write a short note about what's in there, uh, what's relevant, um, and then load that up into a, to our Google Doc. And oh, yeah, hmm. we've got two weeks for that and two weeks for our team to write the submission. Pretty <laughs> pretty heavy, <laughs> pretty pretty big fortnight coming up, Mark. Are you getting much pushback or resistance from from various groups or people or entities? No, no. In fact, the the response has been fantastic. Awesome. Uh, And we're getting a lot of uh, support from, yes, in real unlikely places and 
And people just, I think, this is actually what I'm realising is this is a nationwide issue. Uh, yeah, we, we've been in the spotlight here in Tolaga Bay and, mm. and in Tairawhiti for some time, uh, jumping up and down. But actually, this is an issue affecting a lot of communities uh, nation, across the nation. Mm. Uh, and so we're, it's great that we're starting to connect with each other um, and, and really help each other. Uh, so, no, the response has been great. We haven't had any pushback yet. <laughs> well, wonderful stuff, Hera. We'll keep in touch on this issue uh, with you and um, all the very best for what sounds like uh, a pretty formidable fortnight coming up. Yeah, look, hey, thank you very much, Wallace, and, um, yeah, good luck to us. Yeah, absolutely. That's hearing Arthur Gibson, coordinator for Manatai Tarafati. They are recruiting a volunteer army to look at this issue of forestry slash, and they're going back 50 years to forensically research this issue. So given that wider context of the issue, it needs to be sorted once and for all. It is 16 to 5. The panel, just a bit of a response here. A lot of feedback this afternoon. Um, Panel... Uh, Stats staff member just listening in, while we think it's unlikely that someone would compile a census twice, there's no chance of being counted twice. The duplication would be picked up and the duplicate data set removed, so no skewering of the stats. Good to hear. Good to hear. Mm -hmm. But how would they know which one was the right answers? What if you decided to do Great different answers? Great question, Nikki. On each one, just to, just to mess with Stats NZ. Yeah. Um, Not that I suggest anyone should do that. Yeah, uh, Julie says, signed up for Kiwi Bank when they first opened in 2002. I was so excited we took photos. Got foundation customer on my card still and a four-digit access number. Now, the issue of climate mitigation and adaptation has reached a new urgency post-cycling, Gabrielle, and with it, homeowners looking at the best way to protect their property. Seawalls, for example, are being looked at for those who want to blunt the force of water at the bottom of the cliffs. Beachlands, just one example where several households have applied to fortify the shores with rock and mortar walls. Sea walls are used around the country, towns and cities, but how well do such adaptive, adaptive measures work? Damien Young is an environmental engineer and director of Zealandia Consultant, Consulting. Uh, Damien, welcome. Sure, Ola. How are you? Very well. Though. Hey, thanks for being with us today. They're not new, are they? I mean, Tamaki Drive, that's a seawall, right? It's about 100 years old. Well, yeah, in fact, Tamaki Drive is uh, not only is it a seawall, but it actually houses the old sewer system that used to discharge by Kelly Tartans out into the harbour <laughs> once upon a time. But we're in a much more wow. light space of reality now. So mm-hmm. often they um, form part of other bits of infrastructure, including our sewer system or our electricity network and protect those things along the coastal boundary. I can imagine uh, 100 years, though, the difference... I mean, what is what what is new? I guess, Damien, is the scale of seawall. New seawalls have to be pretty big fortifications. Am I right? Well, I think that when when it comes to seawalls or any kind of other um, civil design, there's a consenting and a design process that has to be followed, and mm. there is guidance in the country about how to achieve those things. And that guidance is where we need to focus our attention to ensure that that's of the optimal standard and that the communities that need to adhere to that guidance um, can access it and it's clearly demonstrated. Indeed. Nikki Bazant. 
Yeah, I, I never thought I would feel sorry for people that live in clifftop mansions, but I, looking at some of those photos, it does look mm. really precarious. It would be very stressful, I think, to be so close to a cliff that you knew wasn't stable. But I do wonder, Damien, and you will be the expert perhaps that can tell us, isn't, aren't we dealing now with unprecedented climate events and climate change? And isn't this kind of just, you know... Temporary. Yeah, just temporary, holding back the inevitable. Well, I think in some ways it's like a toddler that has a tantrum. And between tantrums, there's a settled time. And every tantrum that you have is um, obviously a heightened sort of state of response. So, yes, sure, we're reaching this continuing trend where we see um, more large-scale events. But as being pointed out in the, in the show already today, we don't tend to learn from our mistakes. Mm. And sometimes we do learn from our mistakes and we actually take advantage of those learnings and we build things very carefully and we do our best jobs. But we don't often celebrate when we do things properly because we don't see any damage. We don't see any negative impact. So therefore, we don't acknowledge the good work that's done to push us on the right direction. Hmm. Um, Damien, it's Mark here. Do, do we, please excuse my ignorance. Do we have a national coastline strategy for things like this? There, there is work going on within government um, to look at um, national strategies across the board right now um, hmm. in regards to Oh, you've seen three waters reform, which is very topical, um, and rolling out of that is a, a more um, overarching type of approach. I think that what's important is that um, these sorts of strategies are laid out to us so we can all have access to them and understand mm. when they're occurring. Um, I think that it's a big focus for, um, for our industries to make sure that these uh, standards and strategies are transparent and fit for purpose. Here's a question for you, Damien, from a listener, if I may. Uh, I mean, you may or may not know. Don't seawalls just transfer the wave energy down the coast so it becomes someone else's problem? Well, I, I think there's always situations when we can pass things on um, down the coast or, in fact, downhill when it comes to the way water flows downhill. So there's processes um, around... Um, hydrodynamic processes and wave processes that have to be considered whenever you're putting in a structure like a seawall or indeed um, things um, regarding rivers. Um, and the experts need to be um, pulled into the conversation when that occurs. And those particular questions asked and the relevant risks um, either managed, mitigated, or if they're too significant, um, then hopefully the planning processes would um, um, stop them occurring. Um, but one of the things we need to do is to monitor anything that we build mm. um, and make sure that we can identify, like I said, successes. But in principle, there are ways of designing these things to um, to minimise their negative impacts and to um, maximise their benefit. I guess I guess this is going to have to be driven by Wellington because there'll be plenty of vulnerable communities around the country uh, mm. who probably have a very small ratepayer base to help pay for these costs. I'm thinking, for example to Taitokoro up in the far north where I've seen firsthand um, some of the erosion going on in some of the coastline. Parts of Coromandel? Coromandel, yep. Yeah. East Cape, all over the place. Uh, and someone's going to have to pay for it because, you know, some of those smaller communities aren't going to have the, you know, the, the rate-paying base to, to cover it. Well, I agree with that entirely. And I think that particularly when we find ourselves on holiday in the Coromandel, for example, um, you know, enjoying the benefits of, uh, of State Highway 25 and enjoying the, the wilderness environment, um, and, and the beaches that we have found a better, more equitable way to be able to provide the resources to communities that are part of our one community, our one family. Um, and so I think it's uh, a really important issue. 
Nice to have you on, Damien. Really appreciate it. It was so interesting. That's Damien Young there, an environmental engineer and director of Zealandia uh, Consulting. But uh, that's going to be uh, – I, I, I res- that re- really resonated with me. You know, uh, they you – know, you put all your love and money into a home. Uh, and, yes, you know, they are in some cases multi-million dollars, but uh, you face the prospect of it collapsing over a cliff, trying to get a seawall up at the bottom – Quite yeah, something, eh? That must be, I, I can't imagine the stress of that. Yeah. Um, but on a completely different note here, um, I'm just starting to get really envious uh, regarding musical gigs and what you went to. Uh, and suddenly, Harry Styles couldn't be the furthest from my mind. You know why? <laughs> because someone saw the one and only Roger Whittaker live at the Tauranga Town Hall. <laughs> Roger uh, Whittaker, Mark. Uh, yeah, I you probably know? wouldn't be. You, you know, wouldn't be getting in the bus to go and see New him. New World fair. in the Morning. Did he, was he the whistler? Yeah, he, yeah. He's, he was the whistler. He some whistling, yeah. Who's, right. who's a Roger Whittaker fan? Text me. Two, one. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> Finally on the programme. Lots of alternative milks out there. People are branching out from dairy. How do you choose? Most of us just give it a try. See what we like or stick with what we know. But how many of us have made a spreadsheet to analyse, a spreadsheet to analyse the various milks and their environmental and economic impact? Well, Dr. Paul McAllister has. He's an economist and senior associate at the Institute of Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University, Wellington. Uh, Paul McAllister, kia ora, good to have you on. Oh, good afternoon. Well, I know what oat milk tastes like because my uh, wonderful wife has oat milk while I have milk. Tell us about your journey to oat milk. So it wasn't a health issue. I know some people are lactose intolerant. Um, Mine was really thinking about the environmental issues. So I've been looking at my overall carbon footprint and sort of knocking off the things that are really big. Um, emissions like the flying and driving less and biking more and those sort of things. So it's getting down to the food um, items and I've always been sort of tender towards vegetarianism, a little bit towards veganism, but certainly not strict in any sense. But um, I I used quite a few milk products and I just started looking at the research and um, as I'm probably more left-brained than right-brained, I thought a spreadsheet would be a good way to do it. So I I, I sat down, I got my um, Excel spreadsheet out and I put a whole lot of categories in and, and worked through it. But um, that wasn't the final influence. It was actually taste. Taste still had to be the final the final arbiter in this, this process. And so, um, well, Nikki, let's bring you in because you're a, uh, a food writer as well. What we're hearing here is that um, go to oat milk and a lower emissions footprint, just one of many things you can do at home. Yeah, this is an interesting one because I, I actually uh, am a dabbler in all of the different milks. Actually, I'm a quite, quite promiscuous with my milks. I, I have okay. I have cow milk and I have oat milk and I have soy milk, almond milk sometimes. Um, I, they, they are different nutritionally though, and I don't know, Paul, if you if you considered that in your analysis. It doesn't sound like it because you're going strictly on environmental yeah. stuff. But nutritionally, they are not all equivalent, and I know that some of the the milk producers overseas have been quite quite hard on this point where, where they're trying they're sort of lobbying for plant based milks not to be allowed to be called milk in fact 
Because, yes, that's very true. Yeah, I think in the EU else. they've done something. So, yeah, I mean, nutritionally in terms of protein and calcium, some of these plant milks are not the same. Stay there, Paul. Uh, we'll get a response from you, Mark. I have tried to dabble in the uh, the dark arts of the various milks that are available. <laughs> I, I, I got down a bit of a pathway with an almond coconut milk combo, which yeah. was okay. There's so many now. Um, but really, you can't beat the taste of, of dairy milk. You know, cow yeah. milk is just so delicious. Yeah, But I don't yeah. have a lot of milk, to be fair. I, I have black coffee. Well, I do. Yep. Uh, I love the milk. Um, but you know what, Paul? Um, I, I really struggle to say this, but I could make the journey to oat milk because I had it in my coffee yesterday and it's not too bad, is it? No, I, I really like it. I mean, as, I, as the article said um, and stuff, um, I do dabble with a little bit of cream on my porridge occasionally, real yep. cream from cows. Mm, I don't blame you. Yeah. It, it seems a little odd at times to put oat milk on your oat porridge. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not a complete fanatic on it, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I like the taste, and as you say, nutrition is really important, so I did look at that. Oh, okay. And uh, my, my diet's probably balanced enough to, to have the oat milk. Yeah. But, you know, I, and I also found out that for cooking and for various other things, other milks actually are better. Um, and I certainly eat ice cream made of coconut milk. So, mm. you know, it's, it's horses for courses in a sense. Yeah, I think this is the way that we're going now too. I, the, the plant-based milks are really, it's such a growth category in food. It's huge. It's huge, It's just, yeah. it's just and I, gigantic. Yeah, and I think as Paul has said, most of us are choosing them not for dietary reasons, mm. not because we have to, but actually because we're interested in trying them mm. or we want to cut back on and, the animal foods. And Paul, you mentioned the um, farming possibilities because you're not going to get as much. In fact, you're going to get half the cost if you're a farmer. But uh, you were saying that, look, um, we do grow oats here. In fact, we've done since the 1870s. There is a market to home grow as well. Yeah, that was really important to me because I don't want to knock farmers. I want farmers Mm. to succeed in New Zealand. So, you know, I really did think about where the milks were coming from. So that was a big, um, fairly heavily weighted in my spreadsheet is that you could grow them. And of course, we grew them all over the place. We, We did feed the horses with them in the past. So, you know, oats are pretty versatile, and I really like um, the oat farming to succeed in New Zealand. Very good to have you on, Paul Kiora. That's Dr. Callister there, an economist and senior associate at the Institute of Governance and Policy Studies at Vic, and a massive oat milk fan. <laughs> I could Very easily, good. I could give up uh, dairy milk, I reckon, but you would have to pry the cheese out of my cold dead hand. Yeah, and, oh, cheese, no. Yeah, no, no dairy, well, nuts, on another no. note, who knew the panel nationwide had a legion of Roger Whitaker fans? Oh, my goodness. Oh, even, gosh. Aren't they <laughs> great? Aren't the listeners, aren't the panel listeners just the most wonderful people? Even Martin Bosley, uh, massive uh, Roger Whitaker fan. Uh, Jenny, Roger, Roger Whitaker, <laughs> really great voice and love those old songs. Wallace, Roger Whitaker, Wallace, Cindy, Roger Whitaker fan. He's so underrated. Yes, here we go, team. A little bit of Roger Whitaker <laughs> <laughs> to accompany your oat milk latte. <sighs> Harry Styles, who? Yeah. Mark Knopf, Thomas, <laughs> Nicky Buzan. Thanks for. <laughs> Your company, I'm Wallace Chapman. Checkpoint next uh, with Lisa Owen on back 345 tomorrow. Here we go.